Good morning. Well, it's morning for me, um, probably noon for some of you, afternoon for some of you. My name is Liz Ackerman, and I'm co-host for the Moms for uh, America Home Mom to Mom Homeschooling webinars. My co-host, Allie Legg, is sick. So she is, um, she's asked that if I kind of fly solo here. Um, Allie, her is, she is part of the Empower Moms uh, outreach of Moms for America. And she, every Saturday morning, has uh, wonderful cottage meetings for kids, uh, the Patriot kids. So, uh, Kristen, if you would put that link up, please, in the chat. They're every Saturday morning. They're also archived. Just fun for kids to learn about our country, our history, in fun ways, interactive ways. Um, she's got so much going on. It sounds like a blast. So, And it's not just for little kids. Older kids participate, too. It's meant as a family thing. So every Saturday morning, check that out. Um, some of the cool things coming up that Moms for America is doing. Um, our flagship program was the, is the cottage meetings where moms gather, uh, moms, sisters, aunts, cousins, um, gather on a week, weekly basis or every other week and discuss principles of liberty. Um, uh, the Moms for America, faith, family, and freedom. The idea is if you teach a mom the mom will, can teach her family and her friends. So that's a 12-week series. We started our cottage meeting, oh golly, a year and a half ago, still going. We have some wonderful times together and we are learning a lot. Um, the first meeting was April 13th, but you can still register and they're archived as well. Um, the Healing of America, that is um, something you can register for as well. That is 16 weeks talking about the history of our country, talking about the constitution for four weeks, for four weeks, how in the world did we get in this situation? And then for four weeks, how in the world can we uh, get out of this situation? So the cottage meetings for kids, the healing of America, cottage meetings for moms, grandmas, um, wonderful things coming up. Um, I am involved with cottage meetings. Also a new outreach that uh, Moms for America is doing called Grammy Grizzlies. <laughs> um, the t-shirt says, awesome moms uh, graduate to become Grammy Grizzlies. So um, there are so many grandparents now involved with the raising of their children. Uh, we wanted to have a spot for grandmothers to help grandmothers. And one of the things that we're doing is rewriting the parent's guide to make it the grandparent's guide. And um, I'm over um, homeschooling helps for grandparents because some grandparents are totally involved in the homeschooling of their children. Some are at least cheerleaders and can be a big help. Um, also, another important um, thing that mom is moms for America is doing is a school board spring training. Um, I can't emphasize enough how important that is that we have people run for school boards. Yes, these webinars, there are two of them. 
they're archived as well on the Empower Moms area of the our Moms for America website. If we wanna change what's going on in the schools, we can't just sit back. And just this morning, I was looking for a site in here in America, in, sorry, in Illinois. We just had um, statewide elections for school boards. And as I was trying to find information about our school board candidates, which was difficult by the way, I came across this site, I was it Save Illinois or something? But it's paid for by the Democratic Party, and they were saying we have extremist conservative candidates running for school boards, library boards. We need to stop them. You can put your zip code in and find out if you have any of these extremists running in your area. So I did. Thank goodness there were no extremist conservatives running in my area. And when I told somebody that, they said, oh, darn. But we've got to be the change, as they say. So, yes, um, the links that Kristen is putting up, um, it, uh, they're from, I think, the Chicago Sun-Times. Three, the Democratic Party, for the first time, was investing over $300,000 in um, fighting against these conservative uh, candidates. And also, the other one that she put up, um, is dark money organizations are on the ground trying to protect or trying to um, infiltrate library boards, school boards. And Moms for America is listed as one of those dark money candidates. So um, I have a little granddaughter helping me here. Um, so um, anyway, as someone has said, conservatives tend, well, those of us that have our way of thinking tend to be a little bit independent and hard to corral. We're just kind of off doing our thing. We want to be left alone, but it's not time to do that anymore because there are folks that are organized um, against what we're trying to do. So anyway, if you can possibly attend that school board spring training, check it out. It'd be a great Great thing. We do need to get, um, if we want things to change, we've got to be on the ground being some of the changers. So um, I want to give David lots of time. Another thing that we are, before I forget, um, we would love your input. Can you, if you've got ideas, we, the subjects that you would like for this these webinars, please put it in the chat so that we can know and start scheduling programs that will meet those needs. Um, yes, you can, there's the link, email Kristen at kristenformomsforamerica.net. Let her know, what would you like? <laughs> I like that, Terry. The term extremism is considered a political weaponization of labels, yes. And what is dark money? I don't know. Um, anyway. We have a wonderful guest today. A lot of us are concerned with what can parents legally do? Um, <clears throat> so I reached out to David DeLugas and I am so grateful that he is agreed to join with us. I'm gonna read you his bio so I don't miss anything. David is first and foremost, the father to a 16 year old child. 
After graduating from Duke University, David earned his law degree from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He's licensed to practice in Georgia and to appear before several U.S. Circuit Courts of Appeal and the U.S. Supreme Court. David is a trial and appellate attorney with expertise in constitutional law and family law. In 2013, he founded Parents USA after conform, confirming the absence of an entity in the U.S. with the size and power to look after the interests of parents and their children and to fight for their rights. Parents USA has supported parents through advocacy, including filing amicus curiae briefs, and I hope that's pronounced correctly. Um, that means he's been giving out information on various court cases. Uh, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the First Circuit, Idaho Supreme Court, Georgia Supreme Court, and Wisconsin Court of Appeals. David resides in Metro Atlanta. David, we are so happy to turn it over to you. And please, if you've got questions for David, put them in the chat. Or, um, yes, David, take it away. Well, um, first of all, thank you so much. And thank you, each uh, attendee. Uh, for being here. Uh, I'm going to try to share with you what I've learned over what now has been 42 years of practicing law. And uh, yes, it's funny that lawyers are always called practicing, presumably because we never really get it correct. Um, and if you'll notice in the legal system, there's generally somebody on one side, somebody on the other side, and theoretically, a neutral party acting as the judge. But if you know of all the, and I'm not going to try to teach everything about the three branches of government, but I encourage everybody to become aware that there are, or there are supposed to be three branches of government, each independent, each operating as checks and balances, but where one particular party or one particular viewpoint um, commandeers all three branches of government, or at least two of the three it becomes increasingly difficult for us. And before we came on uh, air and started the webinar, one of the comments I made was, parents should not be required to spend so much time, energy, emotion, and money simply to leave, live a life without chaos in it, in which they get to raise their children and direct the upbringing of their children as they choose. Now. That's a segue to the constitutional issue. And I, I really do want everybody to become familiar with these words, the concepts, and what constitutional rights mean or what they're supposed to mean. So here, here you go. And please throw questions out there and try to get me to develop it so that it's understood, because this matters to what you can and cannot do on behalf of your child when you say, but that's my right as a parent. Quite often you'll get pushed back and go, well, no, your right doesn't extend that far. And then you're in that dilemma of, well, I thought it did. Let, let's see. Let's do some instruction here and see if we can figure it out. So if the U.S. Supreme Court has held that there is a constitutional right, then government is supposed to respect that right. First Amendment, Second Amendment, Fourth Amendment, search and seizure. Um, I'm assuming everybody knows what the first and second first freedom of the press, freedom of expression, freedom of association, um, and freedom of religion, Fourth Amendment, uh, search and seizure, no illegal search and seizure, Eighth Amendment, unusual punishments, things of that nature. We're supposed to have those rights. Ah, but they're not unlimited. 
government is allowed to infringe on your rights if, here are all these buzzwords, it has a legitimate and compelling governmental interest. Now, what is that? Well, government just says they have an interest and then they go do things. It's up to us to challenge what is it a compelling and is it legitimate? And in the cases of your children, government claims, and I think this is correct, they have a right to protect children from harm. And there's a case from in the US Supreme Court from 2000, and the articulated measurement is this physical harm and long-term emotional harm, all right? Uh, parental stake, Miss McCoy asked, what is your opinion on the term parental stakeholder being used instead of parental right? I don't know what a parental stakeholder is. Parental stakeholder is another made up term by somebody who wants to change the conversation away from what is actually a fairly straightforward and simplistic view from the US Supreme Court. and. That means our executive branch, which is everything from the governor of each state down through the administrative agencies and including school systems are, and police are supposed to follow. Legislators are not supposed to enact laws that violate rights absent some compelling legitimate governmental interest. So that's really important to know. If that's the case, here, here comes the next really little subtle but tricky element that matters maybe more than anything. If government has a legitimate compelling interest, then they have the right to infringe on our fundamental rights, including your rights as a parent. Ah, but that doesn't mean they have unlimited right to infringe. They can't do anything they want. Let's, um, you know, I can exaggerate for illustration. Let's say a police officer has the right to stop and detain you. Well, that's actually a violation of your right of freedom of, of movement and association. But the government interest in detaining you is because they're in, say, investigation of a crime and you match a description or they're trying to keep the area safe and they want to ensure that because they've stopped you, they want to ensure that you don't possess a weapon that might be used to harm one of the police officers. That all kind of makes sense. So they might pat you down, they might check, they may ask you, are you carrying any weapons? But the mere fact that they have an interest that is legitimate and compelling and that they can infringe on your rights doesn't mean they can strip search you right there on the sidewalk. There are limits to what they're allowed to do. So the phrase that the courts use is that they have to use the, government must use the least restrictive means to accomplish that legitimate and compelling interest. So there you go, that, that's it in a nutshell. And we as parents, we as members of our community across the country should hold government accountable. The problem is, and this is, I, I'm a lawyer, we're a nonprofit, we, but the way lawyers, judges and advocates make money is they're involved in the legal system. Meanwhile, the clients, companies, uh, individuals, they have to endure this horribly time-consuming process. As I was saying, some of the lawsuits that are going on right now are parents who were fed up that schools are not being transparent with them about certain things. Now, the, the hot topic, of course, understandably so, is 
my child is being called and you referenced by a gender and a name different than the name I enrolled the child and different than the gender of the child at birth. But the school hid all this information from me. So I, as a parent, neither was aware of the issue, could not do anything to support or help my child because I've been uh, made ignorant by the school, um, or I don't have the, the information where I can make the value decision of I'm withdrawing my child from school because of what I perceive as the school actually taking a stand on my child's gender. Now, that's an argument. We're all familiar with that argument, and it's a valid one. But those lawsuits are enormously time-consuming. They take months and years. Once they get through a federal court or a state court, the school system that has government money backing them is in a position to appeal and make the process longer without a decision that will hold. And then there are competing decisions around the country uh, in different circuit courts of appeal that ultimately the Supreme Court has to do. And so what am I saying? What I'm saying is it shouldn't take this long, people, but our government is making it time-consuming, delaying our rights being vindicated in many or most situations. So what do we do? Incidentally, let me ask you about, let me, again, it's a rhetorical question, but one of the thoughts is, if your child's being bullied at school, shouldn't you be notified? If your child is the aggressor and the bully, shouldn't you be notified? If your child is flunking, not turning in assignments and lying to you, <laughs> students, children ever lie to their parents? I mean, of course they do. They lie to the teachers. So one of the positions Parent USA has taken, uh, keeping in mind, what I think distinguishes Parent USA from other entities uh, that are advocacy groups for parents is this. We take a stand only based on the rights of parents, not on the agenda or the outcome. So <clears throat> to us, it's just the process. So it doesn't, you can substitute in a different topic. Our answer is going to be the same. So <clears throat> as I say, when schools claim or teachers or staff claim, well, we are lying to the parents about the name or gender of a child because the child has indicated they don't feel safe at home in sharing that information with their parents. One of the first questions I have is, are you saying that you trust the student is telling you the truth 100% of the time about everything? Or might it be, I want the sympathy and the support of my teacher even though my parents are really terrific and would be supportive of me because that puts me in good favor with the teacher. I might get better grades. I can get away with not doing homework. Uh, a myriad of reasons because children are pretty clever. And again, let's change the topic. Let's say your child or children, at, uh, students at school are doing drugs, either doing drugs or selling drugs, or they're reporting other students who are doing it and therefore they're getting bullied or beaten because they're the snitch. Should the school be allowed to hide that information from you? Of course not. If your child doesn't turn in their homework, but is telling you, oh, everything's fine at school, and you haven't gone to the online portal to check their grades and assignments, should the school be able to change that information so that you as the parent can't discover the truth of how your child is performing academically at school? They should never be allowed to do that. But here's the caveat, and I think from my read of a lot of the boards and 
social media across the country and different platforms, one of the dilemmas is this. Get active. Uh, Liz and Kristen and, and your organization, they're, you're fabulous. Get active. Get Run for school board. Get on the school board. Just like a coach, uh, as a parent who wants to be coaching their child's um, um, soccer team because you want to teach it and coach it and be more supportive and uh, add more value to your child and their friends, uh, peer age friends, be the coach. If you want to impact your schools, be a teacher or be a school board member, get active. Keeping in mind, you may be in the minority, but you at least have a voice. The other is, of course, rally people to vote. Get your blocks of voters together. Um, there's so much attention paid to the, to the U.S. presidential races. Those, yes, they impact us, but maybe more so than anything, your state U.S. senator uh, is important because of all the nominations that get confirmed. But the other part is your local school board. And those school board members sometimes get elected by a few hundred votes or a few thousand votes. It's You don't have to get millions of votes to get elected like you do president of the U.S., but school board member, far fewer. The budget to run, much less, you might be able to raise money uh, from friends, family, and others who share your points of view locally. But ultimately, what's your real tool and weapon? You as a parent choosing the school or the educational path of your child. Speak about this a lot. Your choices are the public school where you live, which is why people take such great care to choose when they can choose where to live based on the school um, uh, school district and the particular high school, elementary school, all the way down to kindergarten. You want to know where you're living. But some people don't have the great flexibility that others do financially. Or maybe you don't want to move too far away from where you work and commute to work. Uh, those are considerations. And I don't say this flippantly as if it's easy. But if you think about it, people sailed across the ocean from England to the U.S. to find freedom. People moved from the East Coast to the West Coast to, to, stake, to, to grab a stake in their lives. They went in Conestoga wagons when there were no, no interstate railroad uh, roads to travel on. So if for your child you need to up and move to a different state, different school district, if you need to sell your house, if you're renting an apartment, break your lease and move, think about the power you have and other parents have. Uh, I'm not calling for a walkout, but I wouldn't particularly mind if there was a day of reckoning where parents across the country held their students out of school five or six days in a row. Yes, it's a burden on parents who work. How are you going to take care of your child? But when schools realize the only reason they have jobs is because we send our kids to their school. I once was in an argument, I'll call it an argument, with a school member who was uh, wanting to enforce the compulsory education law. And right, let me talk on that for a minute. It relates. I think it relates. I hope you do. You all find it does, too. Most states have a compulsory education law. They claim the compelling governmental interest is we need to educate our citizens, starting with the youth. But the compulsory education laws don't have anything in them about education. They only have things in them about attendance. So your child can be a straight-A student, miss days from school, and then you can get arrested and charged criminally for violation of a state compulsory education law 
where another parent whose child goes to school every day but is flunking all the courses, there's no consequence to the child other than maybe not advancing, but they'll probably get their degree anyway, even if they can't read, write, or do math. But nobody gets in trouble for missing school because they were there, even though they didn't get educated. Now, I've argued and tried to, by the way, getting a parent and understand why, as we have defended pro bono, meaning without charge, um, parents who have been arrested and charged under state compulsory education laws. And when we push back, what the government does, the prosecutor ends up doing, instead of the $100 per day missed and 30 days in jail for per day missed, that's unexcused absence by that student, the parent gets offered a $100 fine, no probation, go about your business because we fought back. And the parent, under again, understandably accepts that plea offer. It's often called plea coercion because the state often coerces defendants in all types of criminal cases to take the plea because the state doesn't want to try the case. They might lose it. Uh, but in the case of a parent who's charged with violation of a compulsory education law, compulsory attendance law, that $100 fine and being done with it is so attractive. So far, we haven't had a parent willing to be convicted that would allow us to appeal the constitutionality of the law. Again, I believe, and I've written and drafted a, an amendment to these various laws that would have a caveat that says that as long as the parent submits uh, a, a note or excuse for the child, then the school must accept the parent's ex, uh, notice that the child is missing school and it won't be considered unexcused and it won't be a violation of the state compulsory education law as long as the child has attained a certain objective academic score, B, C plus, I, something, anything that reveals that missing school, let's go back to what I said earlier, isn't harming the child. If it's not harming the child, the state shouldn't have a right to force the child to show up every day and punish the parents if the child doesn't. And I guess what? I can't get a legislator to back that amendment to the bill. And here's why and all of you probably know this on some level, it comes back to money. In the first case, that's why there's a mandatory attendance law, because schools get money based on attendance, their enrollment and their attendance. And the federal government has hijacked that role by saying, here's money, we'll give you money, A, if you teach the way we want you to teach, and B, if you have certain enrollment and attendance, then you get the money and all the state governments and state school boards all claiming they're doing it for the kids, which is a lie, want the money so they have mandatory or compulsory attendance laws, and then they follow whatever rulings come down from the Federal Department of Education. Most recent one, many of you probably already know, involves interpretation of Title IX and whether that means that schools can or cannot uh, allow transgender women in the case of you know high school, middle school, and such, uh, um, compete against um, genetic women. I'm not even sure I'm saying it correctly, but if you understand the concept, it's the federal government demanding the states do what the federal government demands, and they're using money as the um, the bribe, because that's what it is. It's you don't get the money if you don't follow our rules. 
makes it very, very difficult for parents. But, you know, the ultimate weapon you have as a parent, and as Liz pointed out, I have a 16-year-old who's in 10th grade. And the control you have is to say, I'm not, my child's not going to your school. My child's either going to be homeschooled, my child's going to do online school, my child's going to, we're going to move and go to a different school district. Um, I'm going to have the child live with a friend at a different location where there is a school. Depends on how far you want to go on and your, your notion of keeping your family intact, your values and your integrity. Um, we don't want to sacrifice our children for the sake of principle, but we also don't want to sacrifice our children because it's inconvenient for us to take measures to protect them from those things we don't like. Because again, <clears throat> candidly, it's probably easier to start a petition or to go to a school board meeting and speak up knowing your being there is probably not going to make a bit of difference to the people who were unwise enough to implement a particular policy you don't like. But the harder move is to make that decision where your child's like, but I like going to school. I have friends there. I'm on the I'm on the sports team or on the I'm a, on the cheer squad or the dance team or this and that. Um, I mentioned dance. So let me, let me go ahead and say it this way. And I, I shared this earlier um, before we came on air. If your child is enrolled at a um, um, karate studio and the the sensei is particularly vicious, mean, and brutal. If, for those of you who remember the movie, The Karate Kid, he's the bad sensei who's teaching kids to hurt other kids. He's not teaching the honor. You're probably never going to get a, that teacher, that sensei, to teach karate differently. Your choice is to find a different studio with a different sensei whose philosophy and teaching methods are more aligned with yours. If your child is in a dance team, and your child's seven or eight years old or 17 years old, and you think the choreography is either too um, sexualized and shouldn't be done, and you complain to the dance instructor and the other mothers who are maybe love it because they think it's so wonderful because there are those mothers. And I'm not saying one's right or wrong. That's up to each of you because not my child, your child, you decide for your child. But if you've decided for your child what's being taught, uh, your child's being taught to dance and moves that you find unacceptable, you're not going to get that dance instructor to, to just go along with what you want because that's what the dance instructor wants. And you enrolled your child in that dance on that dance team. So what's your option? Find a different dance team. Take your child out of that, even though your child may complain and go, no, mommy, I like doing this. I like my friends here. I like Miss So-and-so who's the teacher. You may have to make those tough choices, but they're your choices to make based on what you think is best for your child. Um, and same thing goes for the school. And I think that's the point. But I also want to make this point that I see around the country in this discussion about schools and education and children and who knows better. You don't have to know better to have the power. You have the power. It's your right to decide. And you can say, I know what's best for my child. And if an educator, somebody, oh, they have that master's or PhD in education, they're on, a, they're on the school board. There's somebody and they say, no, 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 you don't. We do because we're educators. The answer is, I don't care if you do know better than I do. I don't care if your decision is better for my child's education. 
The point is, I have the power, the right to make choices for my child. And if your education um, program and philosophy and curriculum don't align with mine, I am going to withdraw my child and get them in a different program or place um, because that's my right. But you don't know what's best for your child. Answer is, Supreme Court says, I don't have to know what's best. As long as I don't hurt my child, I get to decide. So again, keep that in mind. Please try not to use the argument that you know best or you know better, at least from my point of view as a lawyer, because you don't have to know. That's something somebody can debate with you about whether you do know better or don't know better. They're going to start going in. Well, you're only a high school graduate. How could you? You never graduated from high school. Or, uh, you're, you don't know what we know and you don't know your child. None of that matters to the discussion. So don't get caught up in that debate or discussion. The answer is, as long as I am not hurting my child, long-term emotional harm or physical harm, or in a way that some court using due process and clear and convincing evidence, I'm giving you some more buzzwords, you may not, don't, you, you may not want to use these and that's fine. But here's so you know, unless there's an independent judicial decision that the government has shown by clear and convincing evidence that you're harming your child, it's none of their business. They have no right to intervene and override your decision as a parent. And that is, holds true for vaccinations. That holds true for everything to do with your child. Now, if government comes in and it's about vaccinations and they show by clear and convincing evidence that your child will be harmed, not might be, but will be harmed by your decision, then a judge can decide, well, we're going to give government authority to administer that particular vaccination. Maybe over religious objections, and that's a different issue because those really conflict, uh, but they shouldn't. They should. You should be allowed to invoke your uh, sincerely held religious beliefs. And, and again, unfortunately, judicial officials get to decide whether your religious beliefs are more sincerely held than another. Although I will tell you as a caveat to that, how often you go to church is not how courts decide whether you have a sincerely held religious belief. Now I'm bouncing around a little bit, but I hope you can grasp, um, and I don't mean that in a negative, I mean that as you're not even law students. If you were first-year law students, hands would be up all over the place asking questions. And I will, I will concede, I am not a law professor at a law school, but I am a 42 years of practicing law, having written briefs on these topics. And let me clarify the one thing. When the term amicus curiae is used, that literally means friend of the court. That means we file an uh, appellate brief always on uh, in support of the position the parents are taking in their appeal, but we may be taking it from a slightly different perspective, meaning here's some citations of authority, some appellate decisions in other places that the parents' lawyers didn't find or didn't cite, or here's some statistics about children and, and parents and such, and the value of the integrity of the family and not undermining parents. Um, boy, I could talk for hours just on the whole idea of government should take no steps to undermine the relationship between parents and their children, such as suggesting 
that minors don't have to comply with their parents because government's going to step in and help the child make independent decisions from their parents, mm -hmm. such as those laws who that get circulated recently, particularly that say, well, if you're a mature teen, you can you can get a uh, vaccination even though your parents wouldn't authorize it. Um, and I, I'm as an organization again relying not on our personal points of view, but only on the U.S. Supreme Court decisions on on parents' rights for over a hundred years. Um, while I'm on that, there are organizations that are seeking to get a um, constitutional amendment to uh, enshrine the rights of parents. I, I'm against that idea, and I'll, let me tell you two reasons why. This, in the 60s, there was an equal rights amendment that had to do with men and women having equal rights. That constitutional amendment could not get enacted in the U.S. because of the number of states that need to pass it and, and the legislate the U.S. Congress. So my point of view is pragmatic. We're never, especially in this divisive political uh, area, arena where we're in, there's never going to be a new constitutional amendment enacted. We could put forth a constitutional amendment that says breathing air and drinking water are essential for human life. No other commentary, just that. It would never get enacted because the parties would fight over it and want to amend it and change it. It never happened. The idea that we need a constitutional amendment uh, for parents' rights means maybe we don't have parents' rights, therefore we need to go to an amendment. I prefer taking the point of view that the U.S. Supreme Court has held for 125 years that parents have the right to raise their children as they see fit, and the only compelling governmental interest that allows government to infringe on the rights of parents is to prevent actual harm to children that the parents would otherwise cause. That's it. That's pretty straightforward. So, David, I, yeah. I hate to interrupt you. This oh, has been wonderful. I would love to have some time for questions. Um, so those of you that are on, please put in the chat. Um, or you can raise your hand. I can click raise you, hand and say, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm, whatever. Um, and if I have a question about what parents can do, um, or homeschooling parents, um, about books in libraries, school libraries, public libraries. Um, so we'll wait and see if somebody else has anything. <clears throat> I know we started our homeschooling journey 40 years ago last fall, and people looked at us like, how do you no, and friends of ours that thought about homeschooling or were, had their kids in public school would often be double and triple teamed by teachers saying, we know what's best. Yeah. Who are you? As they had concerns. So, yeah. As you read off, I have, uh, I, I, my, my father had a GED and my mother had a couple of years of college and they valued education. I ended up graduating from Duke University. And yes, my allegiance is to Duke and sports and not UNC Chapel Hill, where I earned my law degree. But here's here's my perspective. Um, for I'm, a, I'm speaking as a parent now, not as an executive director of Parents USA. If my 10th grade son decided he didn't want to finish high school, 
that's okay with me. Guess what? For the, from the beginning of time, children grew up and learned through apprenticeships. They yes. learned by going to work, by they learn from their grandpas and from their father and their mother. Um, I happen to know how to sew. I didn't learn that at school. I learned that from my mother. I can cook. I learned that from my mother. I learned a lot of things from my parents. There's book learning. There's learning life. Um, yes. I don't know that government has a monopoly on knowing what's the right things to teach your child. Now, I, I, I get pushback from my son and his friends about, well, why do I need to know this in math? And I go, honestly, you probably are never going to use a lot of those things that they teach you in math. But what you're doing is you're like an athlete training a part of your body to perform other skills. So when you do math, you're training, and this is at least my explanation to my child, is you're training your brain to work in ways that will benefit your thinking process later. Oh, good idea. Yeah. But good you have to do the extra. I mean, it, when, uh, professional athletes, for example, they go to the weight room and pump iron. But when they're playing basketball, they don't pump any iron on the basketball court. But part of their training is in the weight room. Golfers do the same thing. Yes, they hit golf balls as part of their training, but they also do weight training and they do endurance training because those are different skills and, and abilities that help them perform uh, in the stage of their actual uh, vocation, professional golfer mm -hmm. or basketball. Mm -hmm. So if we're going to train our brains, we can do it in so many different ways and government tries to fool us into thinking, but we are the way, as if government is a religion that we're supposed to follow blindly. And thank goodness for all of you who are asking the questions and not accepting the answers from government as, as uh, blindly as I think historically parents have. Yes. Anyone have any questions? There's just a lot. All right, I'll expect everybody to uh, complete the test that we're going to send you. Mm -hmm. I'm kidding. Um, yes. Well, I'll, since we have a little time, and if you see a question pop up, interrupt me. But earlier I was asked the question of what do you do if you're a parent and there are books in the school that you believe are inappropriate or even to the point where they're pornographic? Um, and I will tell you that um, there's a quote out of, I think it was Justice Brandis, of the U.S. Supreme Court decades ago of, I'll know, I don't know how to define pornography, but I'll know it when I see it. Yeah. Um, it it's used in humor, but it, there's a degree of truth to that. So one person's pornography is not another's. And yeah. the school that has it, uh, the best thing you can do, of course, is to uh, raise your children in a way that they won't uh, access materials knowingly or unknowingly that you find uh, inappropriate for them at that stage of their life. And notice I use stage of life rather than age, because those everybody that's a parent, and I assume everybody here is a parent, knows already that age is not always the indicator of the intellect, uh, maturity, or judgment of your child. And often, um, it may be the middle child who has the best judgment and is more mature and responsible than the eldest child. And yet gov everything government does is based on age, driver's license, uh, how old you have to be to buy tobacco, alcohol, uh, firearms, um, 
have consensual, have the capacity to consent to sex, enlist in the military. Well, unless it's vaccinations we really want you to get, unless it's something to do with gender that we really want to uh, promote or, or support. So age is, is a bad uh, notion. But back to the library is if you don't like it, obviously you can uh, voice your complaint. School doesn't have to do what you say because that's not your right to determine what every other student uh, has access to at your school. And the way the phrase, the question was posed to me earlier was, but what if it's pornographic? Uh, aren't there laws against that uh, being exposed to minors? And the answer is yes, I'm sure there are. But I'm also fairly confident that the local district attorney is likely not going to prosecute the school librarian and the school principal and the school superintendent because of their choice of books in the library uh, because it comes back to politics. And unless all the parents gather together and get the um, district attorney, uh, a light of fire under the district attorney. But I don't know that that's the right remedy. I still think the right remedy for parents is what you don't like at a school, um, something very minor to something extraordinarily important and major um, may cause you to decide on balance that your child can't go to that particular school, needs to go elsewhere, and you look into other schools that are available, affordable, uh, and then support the idea of, I'm not, either I personally or the organization is not against public schools or public school funding, but we do think it makes sense that if you choose to take your child to enroll them in a public school, the school gets what is allocated to your child. And if you don't, you should be able to keep that money to homeschool. And if you enroll in a, a private school or a charter school, whatever it is, that money follows your child because you're choosing where to enroll them just as it, it, it would be like you enroll your child at the University of, um, you know, state, state you, but you pay your tuition elsewhere. That makes no sense. The tuition should get paid. The money should get paid. The scholarship should go to wherever you enroll your child and you as a parent should decide where to enroll them. All right, so we have a question. Um, better control of a county school system if we're on the school board, it, it is, my opinion is being asked and it's only an opinion. The answer is, depends what the other, how many school board members there are and uh, whether you're in the minority or majority of school board members. So if there are five school board members or nine, let's use nine, and you're one of nine, your voice is going to be heard and then pretty much shouted down or voted down in every proceeding. So um, I would I would research how many school board members there are, how many are uh, in, have a particular point of view. Now, again, here's the thing about politics. Just again, my observation. Some of you may disagree with me. Politicians will say anything to get elected. Once elected, they will do whatever they choose to do. And most of the time, the constituents, that's us, we don't know what they're doing. We kind of hear about it, but we don't really know what they're doing. So laws get enacted and we go, oh, and do we blame our particular legislator, either state or uh, U.S. congressman or U.S. senator? I don't know. We should. Boy, that's a lot of work for us to engage in. I'd love to see a law become on, go on the books that says, Every politician is bound to do what they say they're going to do during their campaign. Otherwise, they're defrauding us, the voters, and they have to pay some penalty, 
financial penalty or even go to prison. I don't think that law will ever get passed. Why? Because the people in law in legislators are the ones that would have to enact it. And they're not going to do that because they're running for re-election where they're going to lie to us again. Okay, question. Yeah. Uh, although SCOTUS has always been ruling that parents have the right to raise their children the way they see fit, are there any laws that allow the government to interfere in homeschooling children? The answer is that's a really great question. I'm not just saying that. That's one. And I've talked about this before in other forums. The point of view I have is government should not be involved in homeschooling at all, period, end of story, unless they can first show that either the fact that you're homeschooling or how you're homeschooling is causing actual harm to your child. Wait, I use the same phrase again. Yes, I did. So in other words, just because government says there's a, like, there are laws on the books that say if you homeschool, here's what you're required to do. You have to report your curriculum. You have to report attendance and how many hours and all. None of those, in my view, legally should be sustainable. Sustained means um, adopted and and, and uh, by the courts. But legislators pass it, and it's up to a homeschooling parent who gets put on the spot by the government agency in charge of monitoring homeschooling to push back and say, hey, I'm sorry. I'm willing to take the risk of being convicted of a crime in order to challenge the law that you're using to impose on my family all of these requirements. Because frankly, I I remember what I said about just the mandatory attendance laws, which they call compulsory education. Those, in fact, are there saying you are harming your child if you don't make them go to school not if you don't get them educated. So it would seem to me, again, this is a hypothetical world, not not the real world. If you got called on the carpet, you're arrested, you're charged, you're told you need to turn in things. I think the solution should be you march your eight-year-old or your 10-year-old up to some place and go read a book and your kid, your child reads a book, does some simple math and says, well, they're they're somewhere in the range of within one or two grades of their age or the grade they would be in if they were in public school. So leave me alone. That's what should happen. I'm telling you, that's not what will happen. No. Um, but if we parents can come together, um, <laughs> I don't know if this is the appropriate places. If we could all come together, all the organizations, the groups are out there that and for parents, we all need to have a big convention and get under the same umbrella and same roof and have the power of the ARP has 33 million members. There's no parents organization that even has a million that I'm aware of. Yeah. AARP has a $1.4 billion a year uh, in revenue, which means they can get anything done across the country in legis- state legislatures as well as um, um, U.S. Congress and the presidency. They have power. Parents don't. We need. We really need to look at what we're doing, how we're doing it, how we're going to get power. I, I, I love the idea you're having these webinars, and I'm so happy you invited me. Uh, I get wound up. As you can see, I, I'm a parent, and therefore I'm, but I'm also in a position that somebody wants to tell me, look, I get notices from my, my son's public school once in a while that, he missed a class during the day. He's there, but, and I ask him and he, you know, he says, oh, I, 
I was helping a friend with their homework and I just didn't go to my second period class. And the school's like, well, he was absent. Well, you know, you need to tell us what happened. I don't even respond to those. I got a notice that he missed too many days of school or he was tardy. And I said, okay, what are you going to do about it? Because I'm not telling. Here's one of the explanations. And I do think this applies to every parent. If you're required to tell the school or get a note from a doctor in order for it to be an excused absence, let me tell you why that's absurd and an infringement of your rights. I think it is. Let's say you have this. I know this may sound stereotypical, but I'm just make sure everybody understands. Let's say you have a child, gender doesn't matter, who wakes up one morning and says, mom, dad, I don't want to go to school today. Yesterday, I was bullied. Yesterday, I broke up with or my my uh, significant other, my boyfriend or girlfriend broke up with me. I, you know, I am thinking of suicide and you're like, whoa, alarm bells. And you get your child to a psychiatrist or psychologist. And then you go for a mani-pedi and you go shopping and stuff. I get mani-pedis. But that said, should you have to tell the school that's what's why your child missed school? Should you have to get a note from the psychiatrist? Everybody in the school will know within 10 minutes your child went to see a psychiatrist. None of that is their any of their um, business, and they shouldn't be able to get it from you under the guise of, well, it's an unexcused absence if you don't get a note from a doctor uh, or some appropriate. It's it's totally taking over and that we've allowed that to happen over decades, by the way. And, and yes. I'm so happy that as a result of the pandemic and other reasons, parents are so much more aware. Uh, Terry has a question for you. Yes. All right. I'm, I'm looking for it where. That's okay. Can you hear me? Oh, hear you. Oh, okay. Yes. <laughs> okay. I can. So first, I want to thank you very much for speaking with us today, and I appreciate your positions, and you truly, clearly are um, in support of parents, and I deeply appreciate that. So my question is regarding um, a parent choosing their educational pathway for their kids and accepting money from the government. Doesn't that tie a parent to the government? Well... Um, okay. the, the way you phrase the question, the answer is, well, yes, government can say, I'll give you money if you agree to do X, Y, or Z. So that, that, that's a con term and condition of a lot of, again, take it out away from education, take it to anything else. Government says, we will pay for this, but you have to do it this way. We will pay for that, or we will give you funds. But it's not true in other ways. Look over the last couple of years during the pandemic, they were just mailing out checks because you had a child or you had two children or because you were not working or you were considered an essential worker or not essential worker and you got a check, no strings tied to that. And um, others talk about homeschooling and funding where there are no strings attached to, there's a Pell Grant, but you can spend the money wherever you want. And nobody, other than having to make certain grades so that you're eligible for that Pell Grant to be renewed in the following year, so the answer is government will tie strings to money they hand out. And when you agree to it, it's similar to, say, your homeowners association or any club you belong to. You've agreed to it. So now it's a contract that's binding on you. Now, I, I hadn't thought much about it. So let me try to do this on a fly. I feel like I'm a third year law student. And the professor just asked me a question. Good question, Terry. But so I would think the thing to do might though this takes time, energy, and, and money, and unless we take up that cause or another organization, is to challenge the constitutionality of the law 
and whether or not government has the right to allocate funds and then add these various requirements and strings to it if those requirements and strings are not necessary to either the administration of the funds or the, I mean, I think they'd have a right to verify you actually have a school-aged child. So, <laughs> right. So, or that you were making some effort with the money to spend it. Now, if you spent the money at a private school or charter school, that should be the end of it. But if you are going to use it in homeschool or homeschool co-op or online program, then would they have government have a right to verify that you're doing that? I would, I would not think that is a problem constitutionally. And that's the only way in which I'm trying to approach it. I don't like it, but I can see why that would be just verifying the funds are being used. Now, if they're trying to tie to your reporting or the curriculum that you're using, um, I would think that would become problematic. But I'd have to see what the law is or the the law enacted that allowed for the funding and what strings were tied to it. But I could see it going a little bit of both ways, honestly. Yes, I, I hate to interrupt. I know we're coming, aren't we, Kristen, to the end of um, just a couple of things. Moms for America in Florida did a school choice webinar. Um, it was excellent. And one of the <laughs> things, and I've seen this happen in my 40 some years of homeschooling, um, the shekels become the shackles. So very, very true. Um, so we've got to be aware of that. Also, um, let's see here. Um, Kristen just said that Kelly, who is over the school board trainings, she and Kelly just ran a great webinar on how to conduct a school book audit. So you go in and you're okay, this and this and this we feel are objectionable. And this is why. She said the video should be up later today. She can email the documents if anybody would like them. So if you want to, I don't know, contact Kristen or um, put in the chat. I'll drop or, my email. Mm -hmm. Okay, drop your email. Um, this has been wonderful. Um, David, thank you. I, I hate to cut it short, but uh, we Anytime. need to respect... We need to, uh, yes, Barbie said she would like the document. So that's Kristen's um, email. If you would like those documents, I know I certainly would. Um, so I'm afraid we're gonna have to wrap this up. David, we may have you back sometime because it's super okay. and very, very helpful. We sure appreciate it. We're out here homeschooling. It's been a hard won battle to gain these privileges of homeschooling um everyone has my respect and admiration for for what all, each of you parents are doing uh, and thank you for having me on glad to return oh, you're welcome um i think that we've got to say goodbye but um moms let Kristen know what things you would like to see in the future and if you'd like to have david back uh, may, may i at least uh, encourage everybody to find parents usa on uh, yes. social media and at least follow us. Um, that yes. would be great. And take, take a look at our, our, what we post and share. Thank you. Yes. If you've got friends in the public school system that are struggling, uh, here's a wonderful resource. So, all right. Well, thank you all very, oh, yes, to have David return. Thank you, Terry. Oh, thank you. Yes. Thank you for Ada, that. Ada, email me your, uh, your uh, Ada, I see you, that you want the resources. Email me your email and I'll get it to you. And there's okay. David's website. Everybody yes. go check it out. Yes. Oh.
All right. Thank you. Thank you much. We will be in touch. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.